0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today?
1: Doing well, Robert. How are you?
0: Doing very well. Today on the show, we have Ben Baker. He is the mayor of Dayton, Kentucky. Dayton is a town in northern Kentucky, a city in northern Kentucky. It's on the Ohio River between... I don't want to say what it's between because I don't want to get it wrong. There's a lot of cities up there, but it's in Campbell County. Uh, I don't know that it borders uh, Bellevue, uh, and there's another city there to the to the east there, but I don't remember what it is, uh, but it's there. Anyways, Ben was great. We love talking to him. He's been kind of around a lot of things in Northern Kentucky for a few years now, and we've been kind of following him, so it was cool to have him on the show. I thought it went pretty well.
1: Yeah, you can just really tell like how passionate he is about like making his city a better place and that was super refreshing to hear and I'm already looking at the menu for one of the restaurants that he <laughs> told me about so yeah. yeah it was awesome
0: Very yeah it was a very good interview He uh, talking to people in city government uh, are actually people who do things and make sure things get done and oftentimes like cool things so uh, that's good to talk to somebody on that level for sure he's also engaged to, to Julie Stewart who has written for our newsletter before and is a very cool person uh, and in addition, uh, is the sister of Kara Stewart, who's been on the show here before. But she's a very cool person in her own right, and we were very excited <laughs> to have her, her fiancé, on the show. So we have lots of other things that we want to talk about as well. So Jasmine is going to talk to give us an update about pl- protests and policing. I'm going to talk to us about fallout from the legislative session, stuff that's already starting to happen because of the legislative session. Uh, Jasmine's going to update a story from three years ago, four years ago about uh, James Ramsey. So if you've been following us for a long time, we do follow up on these stories. Uh, And then I'm going to give us a COVID update. So without any further ado, Jasmine, tell us about the police and protests that are going on.
1: All right. So most of this segment, we're really going to be talking about something that happened in Louisville this past weekend. So Sunday afternoon, Riot Heart Media, which um, they are like an independent live streamer. They captured LMPD assaulting and arresting a protester near Injustice Square. The protester's name is D. Garrett, and he's been really like well-known um, throughout the protest this past year, and he's specifically known for carrying a large cross during demonstrations. So in the video, Garrett is standing still with his hands behind his back while several LMPD officers were surrounding him and one was placing handcuffs on him and they told him he was under arrest. So all of a sudden with his hands still behind his back, uh, they take him to the ground. Some, one of the officers is trying to pull him backwards. One pushes him forward and he falls forward. His knee hits the concrete and he briefly like catches himself with his hands um, and then puts them back behind his back. But, All the while, one of the officers is repeatedly punching him in the face. Um, When they get him cuffed and let him away, you could see his glasses were shattered on the ground. And then pictures of his facial injuries surfaced on Monday when he was released from jail. And he's been charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. Uh, So, Robert, did you see this video? Did you have any thoughts about it? Uh, I don't
0: typically watch these kinds of videos, if I can avoid it, so I don't. I didn't watch it. I, I mean, I read about it, and I, I got the gist of it. Um, it seems completely inappropriate. I watched it up until the point where, where the police started punching him, and it didn't seem like any of that was warranted, and it just seemed, again, like another situation where it didn't need to happen like that, and, and yet it did. And, and it, it does keep happening over and over again. This is never appropriate, and it's always bad. I'm not. I don't want to say I'm glad. That's like a weird thing to say, but like, I'm. If it happens, I'm glad that it was somebody who could bring attention to this, and that a live streamer caught that. That uh, these things happen all the time, and they often go overlooked. Uh, so I'm glad that this one is at least in the in the you know public viewing now that we can. We
1: can yeah, I think these videos are like really difficult to watch. They're traumatic for some people to watch, especially traumatic for black people to watch, but they're really important because we, we don't know what the police is doing otherwise, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um And you know, the George Floyd case is the biggest example of that. We saw the statement that the Minneapolis police put out and then a video is film that shows something completely different and that's why these videos are important oh, yeah. Um, but yeah it was definitely like tough to watch it happen um, and it seems like the issue was that they couldn't get handcuffs on him and he said like I have broad shoulders and I couldn't like get my hands together behind my back Councilman David James like spoke on this afterward and said like yeah, sometimes that happens with broad shouldered people. And what you do is you put one set of cuffs on one hand and then join it with another set of cuffs on the other hand to like make, create more space so that it's more comfortable. Um, so there are clearly alternatives <laughs> when yeah. someone's hands can't like come together behind their back.
0: Yeah, I, 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 and just going back a second, I, I don't want to insinuate on any level that I'm, I am i didn't want the video to exist. I think it is super important that these
1: Oh, no, I know have, you understand that. Yeah. But I also get, like, not wanting to watch these things happen, um, but, 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 like, recognizing that it's important that we have them. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, and I did also want to mention, as we're talking about David James, um, he is the council president, But he's also a candidate for mayor of Louisville and Mm -hmm. also a former police officer. So has both the context of knowing probably how to handle arrests like this as a police officer uh, and also is probably talking about it because he is a police officer uh, who is a black person who is running for mayor. So yeah, that's maybe that might be relevant here.
1: Sure. And um, so after the incident happened on Sunday, the new LMPD chief Erica Shields gave a statement and said that what happened raises serious concerns and is not consistent with LMPD training. She stated that LMPD will open an internal investigation for the officer who punched Mr. Garrett and one for the on-scene supervisor. Um, but neither officer have been named. So um, I, I guess it's like a pro to see like a statement being made quickly and that they'll open investigation. Um, But I do think I wish like that they would release names in these situations as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. That that would make sense.
1: So protesters held a march through the Highlands on Monday evening, the day after this happened and D Garrett was present. Um, Police showed up in riot gear and had what was reported um, as tense exchanges with protesters before protesters eventually marched back to the square. I don't think that there were any arrests that I know of or anything like that. Um, And then on Tuesday, they marched to a home in J-Town that they believed was the officer who punched Garrett. And I couldn't find anything that, like, confirmed that or said whether it was or wasn't the officer. Um, so I'm not really sure if they went to the right place or not. And it actually is kind of surprising that um, that information isn't out there at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there, I, I I would assume if the perpetrator of somebody who punched somebody in the face four times and then was under investigation, uh, if it was anybody else, we would probably know who it was at this point.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Something else I wanted to note that I saw on like one of these like live stream Facebook accounts is that Mike O'Connell, the county attorney, actually talked to protesters in the square since this happened, um, including Dee Garrett. I, I guess they saw him like leaving the office and flagged him down. And he actually went and talked to him for about 10 minutes. And I do think like in one sense it's a little bit odd considering his office is prosecuting Garrett. Like it it raises alarms for me as an attorney that the prosecutor's talking to a charged person without an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> um but I I I do think it was nice enough of him to stop when they flagged him down and just like listen for ten minutes. So yeah, that's something that happened that I hadn't really seen in the news anywhere, but I've found this video
2: yeah
0: I that the county attorney is an interesting job uh, a lot of times you're involved in a lot of not great stuff uh, but you're an elected official so I mean you have to be receptive to the people who are your constituents but you are pro- prosecuting people so uh, you know I can kind of see where he might have been like I can't have this conversation right now because of that reason but also yeah to me later but uh, yeah that would be yeah it's
1: yeah. He definitely, you could tell he felt like put on the spot and didn't know what to say and like knew he couldn't say certain things. Um, but, I, you know, I think it probably like makes people feel better to just like tell him what they think and and what they want him to do. And so it was it was nice of him to stop, I think. <laughs> and then the last piece on this story is that um, our Democratic minority leaders, Jody Jenkins and Morgan McGarvey put out a joint statement condemning the assault and also highlighting a need for civilian review boards to have subpoena power, which uh, the reason this is notable is because that's something that did not get done during the legislative session.
0: Mm-hmm. It was on the docket and it might have gotten done, but they kind of ran out of time. And it was also tied up with other. I think that bill had a couple of other things that weren't as great uh, involved.
1: With mm-hmm. it. So- it did.
0: Hopefully we get a clean bill that gives Civilian Review Boards, uh, you know, subpoena power next
1: year. Yeah. And then um, the last story I have in this segment, um, we're moving away from Louisville to talk about Lexington a little bit. So black faith leaders in Lexington held a media conference last week to demand changes for racial justice in Lexington. Um, Since the legislature passed Senate Bill 4, which was a bill that changes no-knock warrant standards but didn't do away with them. This group of faith leaders, um, which includes former podcast guest Reverend Clark Williams, um, called on Mayor Gorton and the city council to pass an ordinance to completely ban no-knock warrants, as um, Louisville did back last summer. They've also called on the county attorney, Larry Roberts, to drop charges for protesters, um, A lot of those cases are still open and pending. Um, Roberts has previously commented saying that he can't comment on ongoing cases. So that was one of their other demands. And they are also advocating for a civilian review board in Lexington and for a superintendent who has experience with diverse populations. Um, because I think we mentioned this on the podcast before, but Fayette County's superintendent, Manny Calk, passed away. Um, and they currently are searching for a superintendent. And despite being um, majority non-white in Fayette County schools, the Fayette County School Board is all white. <laughs> so um, they really want diversity on the school board and in the superintendent search as well.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you for this segment, Jasmine. You know we talk a lot about stuff that's going on in Louisville, but Lexington has a very active scene around this issue as well. Um, yeah, I, I guess Larry Roberts didn't get the memo that you're allowed to do live stream interviews as the county attorney. Uh, <laughs> that is something you know, Mike O'Connell can do. Uh, anyways, yeah, but this is, you know, and, and I'm, I'm glad that these, that the people in Lexington are, are bringing attention to these issues. And Louisville has, in the city government, I think made some significant strides doing the right things. We'll see if the, the results match the strides that the government has taken. Uh, But I I think it shows what's possible in your city government. So I I certainly hope for the same sort of success for Lexington. And then I hope for both cities to be able to actually experience results out of uh, what they've been able to accomplish inside of the city government. So that's police and protesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about the fallout from the legislative session, which is in the rearview mirror for 2021. But the after effects of the legislative session are just beginning. The legislature passed several bills over the governor's veto, and the impacts of those are, are starting to be felt now. The, the bills where the governor and, and the legislature were, all, were absolutely on opposite sides. So the first one I wanted to talk about is that on Friday, which was April 16th, the governor filed suit against a new law which allows the Secretary of Agriculture to make appointments to the State Fair Board instead of the governor. It actually, like, split them in two, but they used to be all appointed by the governor, and now it's, like, half the governor and half the Secretary of Agriculture. The political implications are, of course, the governors, uh, the governorship has been kind of split between Republicans and Democrats with, I think, you know, I uh, was, we've actually gone like Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. That's actually how the last, uh, I think five governors have gone. Uh, and the secretary of agriculture has been in Republican hands since the turn of the century. So, uh, that's basically the political way that that works. Uh, but anyways, this lawsuit uh, against this law, uh, I, alleges that actions taken place due to the bill, quote, will effectively prevent the governor from fulfilling his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, unquote, and says that the Secretary of Agriculture, again, quote, does not have the constitutional duty to ensure that laws are faithfully executed, unquote. So, I mean, Jasmine, it seems like a pretty straightforward, like, executive power suit that they're asking the judicial branch to, to kind of play the referee between the, uh, the, the two parts of the executive branch right yeah yeah or i guess
1: that's what it is <laughs> the executive branch.
0: yeah all right so ryan quarles who is our secretary of agriculture he responded by saying that the lawsuit was was quote unprecedented so, uh that i i don't really know if it's unprecedented i think we have lots of precedents for governors suing uh for bills that they, that they don't like going back to the the last uh, governor and his disagreements with the legislature, uh, and then also some, some lawsuits that Andy Bashir filed when he was attorney general. Uh, and anyways, Ryan Coral did call for the lawsuit to be defeated, which is surprising. Uh, yeah, and then he did say, old habits die hard, in reference to Bashir, when he was the attorney general, often suing the state government. So WDRB, in the write-up of this, uh, they kind of pointed out some of the The interesting facts about the fight between the Fair Board and the governor's office. Which, First, the original sponsor of the legislation uh, is Representative Richard Keith, who's from out in western Kentucky. And he was one of the people appointed to the Fair Board after the change in the law, which is interesting. And second, that the governor's office has been, quote, sparring, unquote, with the Fair Board about extending the contract of Kentucky Venue's CEO. So that's the guy who runs the Fair Board and the Yum Center and a lot of other places as well. This person, who is the current CEO, he was appointed to that position during the Bevin administration, and I think that they're slowly getting to the point where there are more Bashir appointees than Bevin appointees on the state fair board, and this man will probably be out of that job. But uh, that's kind of the inside baseball as to what's going on here. So, Jasmine, are you interested? Are you are you uh, surprised that this was the first fight that, that uh, Governor Bashir picked uh, about the laws that came out of the?
1: I mean, I didn't know it would be, like, this specific bill, but I I think, like, the theme of the 2021 General Assembly was limiting executive power, and, you know, he's already filed one lawsuit over some of the COVID bills um, that are similar arguments about separation of powers and the take care clause. Um, So this is, like, just another one of those. So I'm not surprised um, that it was filed. And like, I think the Republican like talking point of all of this has been like, we can't legislate because of Andy Bashir. Look what he's doing. This sets a bad precedent. And like, I mean, we talked about, like a hundred of the bills on this show, they passed over two hundred. They overrode every one of his vetoes. Like I feel like they're legislating like just fine, yeah. really well, yeah. actually for u- their policies. Yeah, very
0: efficiently. They're able to get things done for sure. Uh, yeah, and I did I did fail to mention that there were uh, another set of vetoes very early in the session, you know, before the break uh, that were overridden back I guess in March. But yes, uh, yeah, this is. I, I mean, Jasmine, when it all comes down to it, basically all arguments are about power. Uh, and, and this is yeah. a pretty straightforward expression of power, putting people on a board that can do a lot of things. And, you know, we talked in our last episode about uh, the, all the money that's getting gold out from the American Recovery Plan Act. Uh, these boards have a lot of power and the ability to put people on them is a very big deal. Uh, in, in that the legislature basically stripped that power away from the governor and gave it to the Secretary of Agriculture for reason at all uh, so it, it it's it's not surprising to me that this is this is the first thing that happened but there there was another thing that happened so rich storm uh who is the previous commissioner for the department of fish and wildlife and, and we've talked about this story a little bit the sheer administration and uh the, the commission uh the fish and wildlife commission had been in a long-standing kind of feud about this man uh this rich storm is back on the job and he has a hundred and forty thousand dollars a bill was passed this session to give the department the ability to hire their own uh, hire their own commissioner, which removed that authority from the governor. Uh, so another pretty straightforward taking the power away from the governor and giving to somebody else just because they didn't like the decisions that Andy Beshear was making. So Mr. Storm actually has a contract now for four years, which is, of course, taken uh, past the next gubernatorial election. And his salary is higher than most of the constitutional officers, I think it's worth paying government leaders a good salary, but when you're just paying one government leader a good salary, that kind of raises a few eyebrows, at least for me. Uh, And then this led to a lawsuit between the commission and the governor. Uh, Of course, now that this has kind of been settled with with this law that's been passed by the the legislature, that lawsuit's going to likely be moved. Um, But I do wonder if the governor, is going to file some sort of lawsuit about this action that's been taken by the Department of Fish and Wildlife and their commission. So uh, do they want to keep fighting this fight or are they just uh, happy to let it let it lie low? Um, but yeah, Jasmine, were you surprised either by the commission hiring the same guy that they hired before or uh, would you be surprised if the governor sued over it?
1: Them hiring the guy that they had before is like the least surprising <laughs> hire, I think. Um, that's what this whole bill was about um, yeah I I wouldn't be surprised if the governor filed a lawsuit in this case as well um but like I don't have like any inside knowledge that he's going to um, and I don't know maybe this is a fight he wants to be done with and focus on some of the other executive power lawsuits i don't know yeah
0: yeah, absolutely uh and this one i mean you can only fight a battle over the fish and wildlife commissioner for so long before you just move on yeah so we'll we'll see what happens there but anyways there's already starting to be significant fallout from the 2021 legislative session jasmine tell us what we need to know about former university of louisville president james Ramsey. yeah this
1: is a kind of random throwback story. Um, so it's it's been a while since we talked about this, but former UofL president James Ramsey was back in the news. And just like the briefest recap, James Ramsey resigned as UofL's president in the summer of 2016. And he also resigned from the UofL Foundation a few months later. Then in 2018, the University of Louisville sued Ramsey and other administrators for allegedly depleting the university's endowment to fund excessive spending and also to pay um, some very high salaries. James Ramsey and other administrators, um, namely his chief of staff, Kathleen Smith, were making a lot of money from the foundation alone. So the lawsuit deals with his work for the foundation, and it's alleged that those donations were used for those salaries that I just mentioned, but also for like risky and inappropriate investments. Um, so UofL sued for about $80 million in damages, but there was a settlement on the table that seemed likely to happen in January of this year. However, the reason we're talking about this today is because Chris Oss of WDRB reported last week that the deal broke down um, because the UofL Foundation would not agree to tell the IRS that it did not pay excessive compensation to Ramsey and others from 2010 to 2016. So because the foundation made excessive compensation claims to the IRS, James Ramsey and Kathleen Smith could be exposed to a lot of money and liability for those excessive compensation claims. So that was like, the
0: settlement was basically going to say that like U of L would admit that they paid too much, uh, which would then like reduce the li- like personal liability on the people they paid too much to. But they didn't want to do that, which leaves them kind of like in danger of having a lot of money uh, that they could then have to pay back. Right? Am I mm-hmm. understanding that correctly?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, basically, like, when you're settling a case, if you're the defendant, you want the plaintiff to release any other claims they have, you know, right. um, and the L Foundation did not want to agree to release this claim about excessive compensation with the IRS. Gotcha. So... That's the whole thing. The proposed settlement was private, but the reason that we know about it is because WDRB had sources that said that the settlement wouldn't even come close to covering what UofL and the foundation had spent to pursue the claims. And the reason it's coming out now is because the other, there are other defendants named in the lawsuit other than Kathleen Smith and James Ramsey. And those defendants are ready to settle. They want to finalize the agreement and be done with it, but Ramsey and Smith's potential IRS issues have held it up for everybody else. Um, So it looks like that lawsuit is going to keep on trucking unless they can come to some other kind of agreement. It's not really even close to going to trial. They haven't even been deposed yet, I don't think. Um, So yeah, that's where that stands.
0: Well, this story is just crazy I you know I, we thought we talked about it a lot back in like 2016, 2017, 2018 time frame and it is it's just a huge mess and continues to be a huge mess even all these years later.
1: Even the proposed settlement like U doesn't really like come out doing well from it. Yeah, At I, least according to WDRB sources, so... It, um, it, it feels like yeah. that
0: they're mostly just like trying to do it on the principle of the thing, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's just, man, UofL and UofL Foundation uh, created a huge mess, and it's been a decade to clear it up it sounds like, so... We'll be here talking about it the whole time, uh, but before we get to our interview with Ben Baker, I did want to give a bit of a COVID update. Jasmine said it was a long COVID update, but I'll do my best to get through it pretty so Kentucky's number of cases last week was mostly flat. There were a few more cases than the week prior, but uh, you know fewer cases than the week before that one. We were down, 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 down for like 12 weeks. Then we went up, then we went down, and now we're back up slightly. Uh, even though we're pretty flat, our positivity rate is ticking upwards slightly, which is worrying uh, as a leading indicator. A uh, leading indicator indicates that it could get worse in the future as of kind of the beginning of this week it kind of hovered around three and a half percent it was actually down during uh, a lot of the other uh, a lot of the intervening days and i'm going to look it up right now uh it was 3.39 so it actually is kind of going back down a little bit uh but just one thing to say about a 3.5 positivity rate uh is that compared to basically all of 2020 that's incredible I remember thinking, mm-hmm. I remember when JCTA uh, said that they would be willing to go back to in-person class when when the positivity rate got to 4% and just thinking that that was going to be an impossible standard to meet. And now we've been under 4% for quite a long time. All right. So, uh, you know, even though our cases ticked up slightly, there are still only 11 red counties. Uh, two are in the southern Pinterile, Todd and Logan counties. Uh. I think Todd and Logan County. Todd County is my favorite shape of a county. It's kind of like a like a fun trapezoid. I you know so that's Todd and Todd and Logan down there and in, in the Southern Rile, and then nine counties throughout Eastern Kentucky: uh, Harlan, Wolfe, Powell, and Minifee, uh Morgan, Bath, Lewis, and Mason, and then also Bracken County. So six of those eleven red counties are actually uh, counties that border other states. So uh, you know just a few. County's interior to Kentucky that are in the red zone. Louisville and Lexington, though, both saw a pretty significant tick upwards uh, in terms of cases last week. So Louisville went from 632 to 750. That's about a 19% increase. But last week there was only one death in Jefferson County in, in, in the whole week. So that's that's very low. That's very uh, you know it's obviously a tragedy whenever anybody dies. But one death is a lot better than we've seen in a lot of other weeks. Lexington saw an increase very similar to Louisville's. They had an 18% increase. They went from 220 to 259. Uh, across the country, Kentucky is, near, near, is now near the bottom of states for new infections. Uh, we're 32nd among states. It does appear that Michigan, which has been the worst for about a month now, uh, looks like they've peaked, but their number peaked at a really, really high amount. It really nearly as bad as the infections during the winter when everybody was being hit really hard. The Atlantic coast still remains a pretty significant problem. We have Rhode Island, New Jersey, Delaware, New Hampshire, and Maine uh, in in bad shape, as well as Pennsylvania, which is kind of right there, but doesn't have much, if any, of a coastline. And then two other states are kind of popping up as concerns now, uh, Colorado and Florida. And I think it's really bad that those are states that are having a bad time because they are states where people like to go to visit. So Mm -hmm. be careful if you go to Denver or Destin. (laughs) So those are two other bad states. Uh, Kentucky only vaccinated 85,000 people last week. Uh, part of this is likely because of the pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but regardless, that's the lowest number of vaccinations since early February. And back then, the state was only receiving about 70,000 doses a week. Last week, Kentucky received 158,000 doses, so we're starting to like, accumulate a pretty significant surplus in the number of vaccines that we have available for people. to
1: So do you think that we have reached the point of the people that are vaccinated or the people that wanted to get it. And now it's the vaccine, like hesitant people or the people who will not get it. Like, have we reached that point where the people who wanted it have at least had their first shot?
0: Yeah, I I think that we're if we're not already there, we're rapidly approaching it. Uh, I think that, you know, we have we still I mean, 85,000 people is definitely not nothing. You know, that's a lot of. Uh, uh, that's like Commonwealth Stadium or, you know, Cardinal Stadium plus some extra,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: all the way full. That all got vaccinated last week. So it's definitely not that, the, that we're not uh, vaccinating anybody. So I do think that there's definitely still room to grow and that we will continue to grow uh, in the next several weeks. But I do think that we're rapidly approaching the, the point at which we're going to have to do some extra stuff to get people to get vaccinated. And we're going to have to start exploring some other ways to encourage people to, to get the shot. So while uh, while I still am happy that we're vaccinating tons of people, uh, I wish it was even higher than it is, and I wish we, could, we were still going up instead of going down. That's, that's definitely something. All right, Kentucky remains extremely average among states when it comes to vaccination rates. Uh, Kentucky is actually 27th right now for citizens receiving the first dose of the vaccine uh you know we've talked about different ways that this is broken down and what states are doing better and worse and i mean very early on in the pandemic it was like alaska and west virginia that were doing really well and then you had a real struggles in places like california and new york in terms of getting the programs off the ground so it really didn't seem like an overly political situation there at the beginning but it is now uh, you are starting to really start to see that uh States that elect Democrats and states uh, with Democratic governments and states with more, you know, progressive citizens, I suppose, uh, are starting to have much better vaccination rates. So Kentucky is right in the middle. And only Alaska, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa and South Dakota, so those five states. Those are the only Trump states that have done more vaccinations than Kentucky uh, that voted for Donald Trump. And then you have Michigan, Arizona, Nevada and Georgia the only states that went for biden uh that kentucky is doing better than so it is basically exactly a political situation right now uh with this yeah so that's that's where we're at and i think uh portends our future i think that that, that divide will only get even more stark as time goes along um i am glad andy beshear seems to be working really hard to get people who are uh reticent uh to get the vaccine potentially even for political reasons to try to get them uh, off the sidelines and to get the shot. Um, So I hope that we're successful, and I think we'll be more successful than a lot of other states uh, like Kentucky. But it just kind of is tough because uh, if you were the governor of, say, like Maine or New Hampshire, you wouldn't have
2: nearly as much trouble
0: getting people out to get the vaccine, and this part would be a lot easier.
2: So that's an unfortunate situation that we're at right now.
0: All right, there are a few COVID-related lawsuits that I did want to talk about. So first, a judge in Scott County. Uh, This is the same judge who was friends with Ryan Quarles, who we talked about prior, who had a a case about COVID. Um, That judge blocked COVID restrictions in a number of restaurants across Kentucky. The scope of the ruling was very limited and only applied to a few places across the state. But it did include Dundee Tavern in Louisville and the different Goodwood uh, brew pubs that are in Lexington, Louisville, and Frankfort. So the Dundee Tavern is actually pretty close to my house. I was driving mm-hmm. by there, and I noticed that there was it was really sketchy. But they're allowed to do that because of this ruling in Scott County. So I guess it wasn't sketchy. It was within the rules. It was just not safe. So uh, that's something that's going on there. Uh, and then also in Franklin Circuit Court, Philip Shepard, who we've talked about quite a bit, um, he has blocked the application of HJR 77, which is a resolution that wanted a lot of the governor's COVID orders that passed over A&E Beshear's vetoes. So the Supreme Court of Kentucky is slated to make a decision about much of these uh, these lawsuits soon. I think that they took up appeals on both of those. Jasmine, is it a thing where you can like say that these two things are related and we're going to hear them at the same time? Is that a thing that can happen?
1: Yes, that can happen.
0: I think that that's what happened. I should have run this by you first. But I think that they're going to hear both of these two cases at the same time. And render a ruling that applies to both um but it, it was daniel cameron uh appealing to judge shepherd's ruling that led to this situation so uh we do have a couple of lawsuits that are making their way through so no matter where those lawsuits end up the best way to keep everybody safe is just to be safe yourself so uh if you're not vaccinated don't be stupid if you are vaccinated <laughs> if you are vaccinated continue to be smart uh yeah, Jasmine, I don't know. Uh, I went to a restaurant for the first time in like a year and a half uh, this weekend. Um, still wore my mask to go in, sat down, ate my hamburger at the table. If I was going to get up, I put my mask back on. Uh, it wasn't that hard, and I felt pretty safe because I'm vaccinated, uh, and it was something that I could do that I felt good about. Uh, what about you?
1: Yeah, I think I started eating at restaurants the week before you because I got vaccinated the week before you. Um, So yeah, I tried a new pizza place in town. I went to a soccer game and I had brunch outside. Um, So life feels a little more normal. Um, And I don't know, it's so easy to just like wear your mask and still... Um, try to keep a distance from people when you're doing those things. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: The other, the other thing that we did, we took, we took Louisa to the zoo for the first time. That was really great. Uh, I did not know, like, I liked the zoo. I thought the zoo uh, was very well done. People were very compliant with their masks. Um, and I felt very safe. It was outside, of course, because it's a zoo. Uh, and, you know, it's great to see your kid, uh, wave at a gorilla. Like, that, that was a very special moment. Yeah. Glad I got to experience it. Uh, so. That's a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're able to start doing things again. Um, and it's not hard to be smart and safe while we're doing them, especially once you're vaccinated. So definitely do that, first of all. And then if you do anything else in addition to that, be safe, wear your mask. And, and yeah, there you go.
1: I think that's it.
0: All right, well, let's get to our interview with Mayor Ben
2: Baker.
1: Ben Baker is the mayor of Dayton, Kentucky, which is a city along the Ohio River in Campbell County in northern Kentucky. Mayor Baker was first elected as a city council member in 2014 and became mayor after the 2018 election. In the three years he served as mayor, he's managed to increase investment into a multi-use trail along the river while reducing property taxes. So, Mayor Ben Baker, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast.
2: Thank you, Jasmine, and thank you, Robert. Longtime listener, first time interviewee. Very excited about this. <laughs> very
0: good. All right. Well, we're excited about that. Yeah, and we're we're very happy to talk to talk to you. So, you know, you are a little different than, than uh, a lot of the guests that we've had. In that, like most of the people we talk to are involved involved in the state government in some level. Like usually, the state legislature, and a lot of the people no. that we talk to that run for seats like those, we ask them why they want to run for office, and their their answers usually have something to do with you know impacting the state government or the state as a whole. Obviously, working in a city government looks a lot different. So, so tell us why you decided, first of all, to run for office in general, and, and then kind of why you decided to run for office at the city government level.
1: Sure
2: thing. Uh, I moved to Dayton about 10 years ago, and I, I moved from, I wouldn't say the suburbs, but definitely wasn't, uh, wasn't an urban community like I, I live in now. Uh, and I, I saw the potential that this little river, river city possessed. Got a great location to downtown Cincinnati. I can see uh, I can see downtown from my backyard and front yard, Uh we, We've got a great walkability to our main street here in Dayton. It's it's got this amazing historic charm, and it was kind of a, a hidden secret. And so I I kind of wanted to, to scream about our little secret, you know. I mm-hmm. uh, I saw that running for office would be a good way to make our neighborhood a better neighborhood. And, and provide a more visible impact quicker than I would if I were uh, running for any higher office. Uh, and I didn't really have any intentions on running for any higher office, really. Uh, yep, go ahead. Uh, yeah, but uh, 2013 Dayton City Council it was very divided. I started showing up to these meetings, and I'd, I'd spend more, watch them spend more time arguing with each other, and actually getting improvements to the city. And, and veteran citizens, and they literally argued over where to meet at. They literally <laughs> argued over what day was Halloween. They, one guy wanted to celebrate it on a different day, and, and so they come down to a council meeting, or a council vote. And, and then finally, the, the last straw that broke my back would be uh they argued over whether public art should be accepted in the city. And that wound up costing... Uh, the city, uh, about $10,000, uh, and in money that we spent on the artists that never was used. So that was the day that I realized I'm going to run for city office. I'm going to run for public office, you know? So I've worked in the past a lot with Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Uh, we've got a great organization up here with Jill Gallenstein and, uh, and Dave Newton. And they, they pointed me in the direction of, uh, Secretary Grimes, and she she provided me with uh, this, this crazy Excel sheet that I spent months poring over. And I went out and just started knocking on doors and letting people know, hey, I'm running for, for office. And in those couple months leading up to the office or the election, I knocked on probably 90, 95% of the doors, a lot of people saying, this is the first time somebody running for office has ever been talking to me. And, and that, Overall, it has, it has been very good for me to continue to do that. And I've won three elections straight as most vote get around in all elections. But to, to answer your question, Robert, you asked me why run for city versus anything else. A, I didn't want to run for anything else. B, I saw a more immediate and more uh, visual impact being able to run for a city council seat than something larger.
0: Awesome. That's a very good answer. Uh, I, and I do totally hear you in, in terms of what you're able to impact right away. I also uh, love all mentions uh, of Joe Galenstein and Dave Newton on this podcast. They're friends from way back. Uh, I was in Lexington at the same time that they were and did are organizing buddies of mine as well. So I'm glad that you're connected with those guys. I didn't know that ahead of time. So that's cool. Very powerful, of course. Yeah. Oh, man. More, yes, Absolutely. Uh, but, but a few years ago, I, I, Jasmine, you, you remember this. We talked to Lisa Wilner, who's a state rep uh, from Louisville. Uh, and, and, you know, she at the time when she was running for state representative, she was on the JCPS school board. And we asked her kind of the opposite question of you is to like, why are you leaving this position where you can actually get things done as like a Democrat on the Louisville school board to take this job uh, in Frankfurt as a member of a super minority that you're going to have trouble getting anything done at all? Uh, and she gave, like, a really passionate answer about, like, how much more power uh, there exists in Frankfurt versus uh, versus a, a city government. So, uh, you know, while understanding that there's a ton to get done that you already named there, are you ever frustrated with the level of control that you have versus what, what gets told to you uh, in Frankfurt?
2: Actually, I, I'd probably say quite the opposite as far as, as what we can do and, and again make those immediate visual impacts. I have a, a really great city council and have had for some time now. Uh they're they're progressive, they're they're forward thinking and we're we're getting things done. We're seeing houses get rehabbed. We're seeing main streets being revitalized and these types of things are, are easy when you have a, a city council that is kind of on the same path. So we're, we're really moving the city of Dayton forward, and what a difference six years can make now that we all realize that Halloween is on October 31st.
0: Yeah, that's very important. My birthday is actually October the 30th, so I always hated it when they moved it because sometimes it fell on my birthday, and that's the worst. You know, you don't want to have a holiday as the same day as your birthday. So I, I fully support October 31st every year, which is clearly the most important issue in city government. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so one of the things about Dayton... Is that it's part of the Northern Kentucky region, and there's lots of sure. cities uh, in the, you know counties and neighborhoods and all kinds of small little political entities. Uh, some not so small. Uh, you know, Covington's one of the largest cities in the whole state. Newport's not too far behind them. Um, there's a there's some you know larger cities up there as well compared to the rest of Kentucky. Uh, but tell us what it's like being the mayor of Dayton. Uh, in a place that has such a strong regional identity, um, how has it been trying to establish, uh, you know, an identity as the city of Dayton amongst all the rest of that?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. It seems like every uh, northern Kentucky, you could walk a block and, and meet a new uh, new city council, a new mayor, uh, new form of government. Really, if you look at Newport and Covington versus how we operate, but Dayton has always kind of been like the the Soho of Northern Kentucky. <laughs> Awesome buildings. We've uh, we've got this really great uh, artist community. You mentioned uh, Scott Basler uh, earlier tonight uh, about him running the Lodge. The Lodge is a recording studio here and artist space in the city that welcomes folks in to 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 uh, collaborate and build art. And one of the things that we've had built out of that was the Platinum. Talking His Heart album by Walk the Moon. That was recorded right here, or written right here in the city of Dayton. And we've also had a group in here called Sofa Burn. They've got the Breeders, uh, Kentucky's favorite uh, Daniel Martin Moore, Jeremy Pinnell records out of Dayton, Kentucky, and even Jack White has been known to walk the streets of Dayton because of these connections. This, that was pretty weird seeing Jack in the city of Dayton, Kentucky, and he, he still comes back and, and hangs out with us. So Dayton's got that kind of little edge that others wish they could mimic. It's the, the hard-working ethic, uh, the, the pluck and grit of Northern Kentucky. It's got its, got its own little je ne quoi, as the French would say.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, your work and the work of your council is definitely a credit for that. Because, like, I would say five, six years ago, I didn't know that there was a Dayton in Kentucky. And now I definitely do.
2: So, uh, awesome. you know, kudos to you for that, for sure. Awesome. We're we're glad we're getting the, the secret out, man.
1: Follow-up question. What's the best place to eat in Dayton?
2: Don't ask me my favorite child. <laughs> we Dayton has been very, very lucky in the last few years to have some great uh, restaurants pop up. We have everything from your sports bar uh, where you can go watch a, a Cincinnati Reds game. Uh, That's hometown heroes. We have... Uh, this little uh, taco truck that's born in the brick and mortar called Taqueria nogal that is is one of the finest uh, most authentic Mexican dishes that you can get in, in the region you've got nice date night spaces like Trata's where you go know, white tablecloth and they have a, a piano in there and you, you've got everything in between we've got una taza coffee who is uh comes straight out of Honduras her family runs the farm and we get coffee from there so you're getting a real deal uh South American coffee delivered here to the streets of the city of Dayton, I, and even, I guess, probably one of the ones that I visit more often than not is Hansman's Deli, where we have uh, your deli your sandwiches, just regular deli sandwiches. Today yeah. is uh, Administrative Professionals' Day, so Galactic Chicken catered uh, all of our, our dinners and lunches for our, our city staff today, so Jasmine... If you're, if you're a foodie like me, come on up to Dayton and you'll have many options.
1: Yeah, so I do visit northern Kentucky quite a bit because my best friend lives there. So uh, these are the things that I need to know. And galactic chicken sounds like something awesome. So I'll have to that <laughs> <laughs> All right. So during the 2019 gubernatorial election, you were listed as one of the first people to endorse Adam Edelin. So yep. that leads us to kind of a two-part question here. First, tell us what impact you think mayors and members of state government can and should have on statewide races. And second, you know, Adam Edelman was the most progressive candidate in that race. And does your own progressivism come through it all when you were working as the mayor of Dayton?
2: Great, great question and great candidate, truthfully, uh, in, in my humble opinion. Uh mayors and other city officials, elected officials, I think it's important for us to, to let folks know where we align sometimes, and sometimes it brings a candidate's name to the forefront that may not be known, because we might be mm-hmm. paying a little bit more attention to to my podcast and some other folks in, in the city. Uh, <laughs> but with Adam, that was an easy one. Uh, very easy, because Adam is no stranger to the city of Dayton. Uh Back Probably 10 or 12 years ago, uh, Adam was the auditor of public accounts for the Commonwealth, and he helped us recover almost a quarter of a million dollars that was being funneled out of our schools by a a corrupt superintendent. The corrupt superintendent uh, will not drop his name because he doesn't deserve it. Then found himself uh, housed by the federal authorities, and uh, Adam got the money back to our schools. So endorsing Adam was a really easy thing to do. to answer your second question about progressive policies, in the gubernatorial race last year, I was really impressed by by Adam. His energy policies, his stance on felony voting rights, his medical and rec- recreational marijuana laws, they, they all align and mirrored with my views. Uh, the term itself, progressive. If you don't change, you die. So these are, these are things that I, I wholeheartedly stand behind. And they do come out. In the role that I served for the city as mayor. I you know, last year we re energized the Fairness Act here in Northern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. We were the twelfth city, Jasmine, to, to do so. Yeah. It
1: was,
2: it was at a little stall there, you know, Covington did it mm-hmm. with like an early forefront with Lexington and Louisville. Uh and then it just kinda stalled uh, at around ten or eleven cities. And then uh, I, I spoke with some folks and said, Let's get this going in Dayton, because Dayton's such a welcoming city. It really is to everybody. And so we enacted that unanimously on council. Uh, who did that after us? All of our neighbors. They followed.
1: Yeah.
2: Us <laughs> you saw the, the dominoes dropping on that one.
0: We uh, we actually had Chris Hartman, who's the director of the fairness campaign, on our show, and he gave us pins. Yeah. And I think Dayton had just passed it, and it was like you know twelve cities with little stars uh, in Kentucky mm-hmm. on the pins, and they were out of date almost immediately. Uh, because there were so many cities in northern Kentucky. Now they have to have like a little insert for all the cities in northern Kentucky
2: that have passed it. Yeah. After we passed that, Bellevue, which is our neighbor to the, the west, uh, then that's one of the ones that you can walk across the street and be in a new city. Uh, Highland Heights, Fort Thomas, Newport, they all followed suit and, and kind of got in line, uh, which they should. It's, it's a wonderful ordinance. And of course, we have to do it city by city and not statewide. But, you know, also in the role of mayor, uh, we work with the city's police department, and I've worked with our police chief, who's, who's very proactive to make sure that everyone's being treated fairly, uh, that profiling does not occur, uh, that officers are trained not to do so, and that we have clear escalation paths that are in place for use of force to to hopefully uh, stop any type of unfair uh, violence in our city. So those policies are do come out in the mayor's role. And I, I think it's important that other mayors throughout the city, or I'm sorry, throughout the state uh, enact and, and kind of follow.
1: Yeah, so talking about some other office holders in Northern Kentucky, so, you know, we've seen a lot of turnover in the past few years, and it's one of the only areas of the state where the two parties actually seem to be able to compete at multiple levels. Um, so tell us about the different political partnerships that have emerged in the past several years in Northern Kentucky. You know, like who do you work with the most at the state and federal levels?
2: It's, it's a very interesting makeup up here about as far as D and R. You know, if you look at uh, registered voters in the city of Dayton, you have a lot of Democrats because we, we are, again, that that working class, fucking great city uh and then you go a little south of the county and and you have you know rural cities that that may be a little bit more red leaning uh but that being said we we get both sides of the table uh and here in northern Cont- or in in Dayton my state representative is Rachel Roberts uh she's a very well known democrat very progressive uh and on the other side of the house we have uh, Will Schroeder who is a little bit more blue with her red leaning and in some of his policies. But that being said, the city has a lot of needs. We have a lot of wants. And I represent 6,000 people. So I have to reach across those lines. I have to, to invisible those aisles and put aside any type of partisan politics and do what's best for those 6,000 folks that I represent. So I've worked pretty closely with, with both Rachel and Will in those instances, of whether it's road repair or whether it's COVID relief funds or, or whatever it is. And you know, I've had dinner in the backyard of Rachel's house, and Will Schroeder and I are going to go fly small airplanes together here soon. So it's important to, to, to work those aisles.
0: Absolutely. Uh, don't tell him you know us. He, actually, I don't know. He used us in a, in a
2: debate once with Rachel. So that was, that was interesting. Well, since I already tweeted about it, you might know.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Uh <laughs> Okay, so, you know, we've talked around a lot of the work that you've done, but tell us uh, some specific things that you've done in Dayton that you're most that you're the most proud of. And also tell us what's on the docket for you. What do you hope to accomplish? What's on the agenda for, for Dayton
2: in the next couple of years? Sure thing. Uh, the, the, the list is, is kind of growing every day. Uh, one of the things I'm proudest about is the Fairness Act. Again, we, we led the region, we led the, the state and, and saying, hey, everybody is welcome here in the city of Dayton. Uh, come, join, play, live, work with us. Uh, that that was very important. Another thing is we're introducing arts into the main street. What started off as a political argument about public art resulted in a 40-foot by, I guess, 40-foot, pretty kind of a square, mural right in the middle of, the, of our city that that just kind of pops. Uh, we lowered our taxes, and Jasmine, I noticed you mentioned that in the, the introduction, for the first time in a decade, we did that with uh, development, we did that with uh, property values that are increasing, and we were able to give the taxpayers a little bit of a break. One of the coolest things we did, and I didn't know I I had this power, was to reopen a park. There was a park here in the city that they put chain link and barbed wire around. Seriously, it looked like a, a prison yard. Uh, And so, just last weekend, we went up there and tore down all the barbed wire, tore down the the chain link, and opened up a park that's now got miles of hiking available for for an urban city that's really cool. Uh, Working with a great city team here at at, at City Hall, just last month, I hired Jay Bossett. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not. Uh, As our city administrator. Uh, He comes to us uh, with a great resume, including the city of Covington, city administrator. And, And... He's getting all of our, our projects on, on the right track. Great police chief, great uh, city clerk, and, and economic development managers. And, and yeah, and it's been a, a good list of accomplishments that we're working on. Personally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name drop here. Uh, I, I gave a good woman a ring. Uh, just a couple months ago, Julie Stewart and myself got engaged, so I'm very excited about that.
1: Yeah, I thought about adding that into the intro, like Ben Baker, mayor of Dayton, Julie Stewart's fiance, but... That's all I'm known. I didn't.
2: <laughs> that's okay. That's cool. Uh, no, like I said, we're very excited about that. We're getting married on the front porch of my old Kentucky home. Uh, so that that that's going to be a lot of fun.
1: That's very cool. Uh,
2: so what's coming up? That's a great question. We're going to continue to market this town. We are going to continue to market this region. And we're not going to be the small little town of, uh, that, that, that's a, the best known secret, we're going to be the best known. And that, that's continually happening every day. We're going to have better access to our main street from our new developments. We have a lot of riverfront developments that are happening and we are, uh, we are adding better ac- road access to our main street to, to help our businesses sell to these new residents. And one of the things that's kind of always been uh, a little hurdle for us is increased communication with our residents. Let's, let's get out to tough people, let them know how they can uh, make changes, how they can get involved. And and we're going to do that through communications, through emails, through through social, social media, and just boots on the street. So that's what's coming up the next year or so.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like some some good stuff uh, coming up, and, and we're going to be excited to watch it for sure. Uh, but, you know, as a mayor and, and as an elected official in, in charge of any level of government in 2020, you faced a significant challenge in COVID-19. Uh, I mean, so tell us what that was like. What was it like trying to, to manage a city throughout that whole situation? And figuring, I mean, you talked you talked about having arguments about where to meet. I'm sure that you had those again uh, <laughs> and, and all that. So, so what was that like? What was your 2020 with respect to COVID-19?
2: Man, what a year it's been, eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think anybody runs for office thinking they're going to have to deal with a global pandemic. I think the government can uh, contest to that. Nobody really wants to run for office and then have to make that really bad decision to close basketball courts so that kids can play. Nobody wants to make the decision to cancel a Memorial Day parade that honored our veterans and our fallen soldiers. Those are the things that were really, really tough in the last year. But luckily, again, I, I, I had a great team behind me. Uh, I had a police force that showed up and, you know, every day. I had a fire department that was, that was donning hazmat suits when they would go to help uh, a lady who may have fallen in her home. And, you know, we, we had public works who showed up every day to make sure that our, our streets were clean. And they just never skipped a beat. It was, it was really tough the first year, but we made sure that our citizens didn't suffer and that the services that they were being delivered were still there and still top notch. It, it's getting better. I think we all know that. Vaccines are coming out. They're widely available here in northern Kentucky, and I hope so, and, and every hill and holler in, in this fine commonwealth. And uh, most recently, we're, we're starting to offer vaccines at the local church. If someone doesn't have uh, transportation to get them to, to Newport or Covington or Florence, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to get those to the front doors of people so that they can do those.
0: Yeah. Uh, I also read about your – was it the the Dayton Bucks or something where you were giving out uh, money to allow people to, like, spend money at restaurants, which I thought that was kind of a neat response to the situation up there. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I agreed. Was that you guys or maybe that was – I don't know. Was that somebody else or was that – did you guys do that? That was us.
2: All right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What we did was we sent out a postcard to each resident, each household in the city. Uh And it was five dollars of Dayton dining dollars, and what that meant was they could take it to any restaurant because those were severely impacted by the, the the virus. And they could spend that five dollars, but that five dollars turned into twenty really quickly because five bucks will get you not too terribly much, but it gets you in the door, mm-hmm. and then they spend twenty. So the economic impact of of that program was greatly greatly uh, accelerated.
0: Yeah, I just I always appreciate when people come up with innovative solutions to serious problems. And uh, yeah, we talked about your restaurant scene up there also. And doing what you can to protect it in the midst of this horrible tragedy is something that, you know, definitely needed to be done. Uh, but we also wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the um, the racial reconciliation process and and, and the kind of the protest movement that has occurred a lot in 2020 as well. And we, we track this all over the state. And of course, we're here in Louisville, which has seen a significant movement for, you know, more than a year at this point. Uh, but but how did that process and, and how did that kind of movement come to Dayton and, and what did your community do in response?
2: The community itself didn't see uh, a Black Lives Matter or or any type of, of movement show up in, in our, our town square or anything like that. Uh, we did speak again with our police department and made sure that we weren't racially profiling, we weren't uh, aggressively use of force. So those types of things did come forefront during the the. Racial injustice uh, in, the, in the past year. Uh, Dayton itself, over the past 40 years or something, it has become a lot more inclusive. Uh, right now, like I mentioned earlier to Jasmine, on our Main Street, we we have black-owned businesses, we have uh, Hispanic-owned businesses. Two of those, which is pretty pumped. Uh, got some more down the line, and we're starting to see Dayton is becoming a, a lot more open and, and just. Proud of our inclusivity. So to answer your question, Robert, we, we didn't have any marches throughout town. Uh, I, I did get to participate with uh, with my uh, my favorite representative, Charles Booker, down in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. Talk about a small town with a with a awesome uh, showing.
1: All right. Before we let you go, um, you've already mentioned getting married, and we talked a little bit about what's next for Dayton. Um, yep. But what else is next for you? <laughs>
2: What is next for me? Well, uh, I think I, I mentioned on the project that we're working on pretty close. I've uh, got my plate really full here in the city of Dayton, these projects that I, I need to see forward uh, that are going to take a couple years to, to, to do. Uh, and, Jasmine, if you asked me 10 years ago that I'd be mayor of the city of Dayton, Kentucky, I would not have believed you. There's no <laughs> way that will happen. Now people are hinting uh, statewide races or countywide races. I mean, I don't know, man. What's next for me? Six o'clock in the evening. I guess <laughs> dinner next. <laughs> sure, absolutely.
0: Well, yeah, that's a that's a good answer. That's the best answer that that we the answer we get most commonly. I think. Uh, so we'll. Yeah, no
1: be, one ever wants to answer that well, question.
0: <laughs> we'll we'll be sure to be we'll we'll be paying attention though. We'll we'll. we'll We'll
2: leave it at that. So, all right. Well, thank you very
0: much for joining us. We really appreciate it,
1: Robert
2: Jasmine. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I really appreciate the work you do for the Commonwealth. Right, thank you, Jasmine. How can people get a hold
1: of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old ky pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter with our show notes that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at fordky slash email. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash old Kentucky podcast.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.